My brave lad, he sleeps in his faded coat of blue. In a lonely grave alone lies the heart that beats so true. They will find him and know him amongst the good and true. When a robe of white is given for that faded coat of blue. No more the bugle. Welcome to War of the Rebellion. Stories of the Civil War. I am your host, Leon Meowser, and this is a reading of the regimental history under the Maltese Cross and Tetum to Appomattox, the Loyal Uprising in Western Pennsylvania, 1861-1865, Campaign's 155th Pennsylvania Regiment, narrated by the rank and file. And we're picking up on Chapter 6, where we left off last week, where General Fighting Joe Hooker is given command of the army after Burnside's firing by good old Honest Abe. General Hooker Reorganizes Army General Joseph Hooker had acquired, before his appointment, the reputation of being a most severe critic of all the previous generals commanding the Army of the Potomac, a fact which, in a letter communicating his appointment, President Lincoln referred to as being far from the cause of his appointment, and assuring him that it was in spite of his cavilling and harsh criticism of other commanders, that he entrusted him with the command of the Army of the Potomac. It is to be doubted whether in history there is a parallel of a general accepting a promotion such as this, accompanied with the stern rebuke contained in this letter of the patient Lincoln. Personally, however, General Hooker's handsome appearance as an officer, his genial manners and aggressiveness in battle, earning the sobriquet of Fighting Joe, made his appointment a popular one, the more so because it relieved the army of General Burnside, whose unfitness for general command was established beyond doubt. General Hooker's tact also serving him well and aided materially in restoring confidence to the army, suffering from the demoralization of Burnside's demonstration. General Hooker's first move was to disband the organization of the grand divisions of the army made by his predecessor and in their place restored the corps organizations and plan of army commands, as maintained by General McClellan. This change also relieved the Fifth Corps of General Daniel Butterfield, who became Chief of Staff to General Hooker. General George G. Meade, destined to become so famous as the commander of the army at Gettysburg and at Appomattox with Grant, succeeded to the command of Fifth Army Corps. Probably, however, no single act of Hooker's as the new commander did more to restore confidence and good spirits to the army than the increase of rations to be distributed to the rank and file of the army, and the substitution of baker's bread, and also fresh vegetable rations in camp in place of the irrepressible hardtack. As a consequence, Hooker's appearance in the camps on the march and at reviews was marked by the liveliest cheering and demonstrations indicating the appreciation of the men of his command of his efforts to increase their comforts. During the weeks following his appointment and preparations of plans for the spring campaign, drillings, inspections, reviews, and target firing were resorted to daily, so that the army discipline was restored, and its tone and spirit was never better under any general who had previously commanded 
than it was when the orders to break camp were given by General Hooker on the 27th day of April, 1863, beginning the march to Chancellorsville. President Reviews the Army President Lincoln, on April 7, 1863, visited General Hooker in the camps at Falmouth, where the winter quarters of the Army of the Potomac on the north side of the Rappahannock since the retreat from Fredericksburg had been. General Hooker made ample preparations to extend to the Potomac, on the occasion of his visit, a review of all the corps of the Army of the Potomac. It was conceded that the Army had reached the maximum efficiency and morale at this time, and the display on the occasion of this review by the President had never been surpassed by any similar event since the opening of the Civil War. Composing this grand army thus reviewed were commanders of distinction, several of whom afterwards fell in battle. At the head of the column, General John F. Reynolds, in command of the First Corps, rode with his staff and well-known colors and corps markers. General Hancock, styled by McClellan the Superb, followed with his staff at the head of the famous divisions and brigades of the Second Corps, containing the decimated columns of the regiments of the Irish Brigade, with General Thomas Francis Meagher at its head. Each regiment carrying the green flag of Old Ireland, side by side with the Stars and Stripes, and Second Corps flags. The Third Corps, commanded by General Daniel E. Sickles, who, presenting a magnificent soldierly appearance, followed with his staff, the historic Excelsior Brigade, and the divisions Generals Whipple and Barry, who were destined so soon to fall in battle at Chancellorsville, made an imposing sight. The Fifth Corps was led by General George G. Meade, fresh from the wounds received at Antietam, and the honor of leading the Pennsylvania Reserves at Fredericksburg. This corps also contained the division commanded by General Charles Griffin. Also, the division of the United States Regulars, under command of General George Sykes, and the division of Pennsylvania regiments, led by the intrepid General A.A. Humphreys, in which the 155th, commanded by Colonel John H. Kane, was serving. The Sixth Corps followed next, commanded by General John Sedgwick, a veteran officer of the Mexican War, who had also won distinction on many battlefields of the Civil War, General O. O. Howard, with the empty sleeve recalling the loss of an arm in the Peninsula Campaign, with his staff led the 11th Corps, in which were the divisions of German troops, commanded by General von Steinwer, Schimmelpfennig, and Karl Schurz. The 12th Army Corps was led by Major General Henry W. Slocum, of the most distinguished record, in which General Geary of Pennsylvania commanded a division. This corps completed the infantry troops in the review. General Stoneman, at the head of this magnificent divisions of cavalry, commanded by Generals Pleasanton, Custer, Gregg, and Buford, followed. The historic batteries of artillery, regular and volunteer, made a splendid appearance, all being under command of General Henry H. Hunt, whose handling of the hundred pieces of artillery in the recent Battle of Fredericksburg had earned him great honor and distinction. General Governor K. Warren was promoted by General Hooker to be Chief Engineer of the Army of the Potomac. The pontoon boats on this occasion were not detained in Washington, nor stuck in the mud, but with their guards and engineers, and General Warren at their head, also passed in review before the President and party. The number of troops 
participating in this review, it is estimated exceeded 100,000 and occupied the entire day from early morning until late in the afternoon in passing. Humphrey's division had marched six miles to the open plain selected for this magnificent military pageant. However, as the weather was fine, President Lincoln, as seen on the reviewing stand, seemed to endure the fatigue of reviewing the long procession of troops well, and remained until the last pontoon at the rear of the parade had passed, returning with great precision and cordiality the salutations given him by the Corps and other commanders. The orders for strict discipline on this occasion, prohibiting the men from making demonstrations and, as required by military etiquette, to keep their eyes front, were frequently disregarded, especially when some of the famous brigades and regiments containing emotional individuals threw up their hats and cheered lustily for the much-beloved president. This flagrant breach of military etiquette was overlooked on this occasion, no offenders being sent to the guardhouse for the infraction. Marching Orders Eight Days Rations One week later, the 26th of April, marching orders were issued by General Hooker to his army, together with the unusual direction that each soldier in the ranks should carry on his person eight days' rations. On no previous campaign or march of the army were the men in the ranks required to carry more than three days' rations. This order in itself indicated a movement from the base of supplies and probability of hostilities lasting some days and marches to points where the army wagons with supplies could not promptly follow. This gave rise to a great deal of conjecture as to the objective campaign about to be undertaken by General Hooker. The secret, however, was well guarded, and the soldiers in the ranks had to keep guessing as to the destination. The 155th bade farewell once more to Camp Humphreys, and just before the move was detailed for picket duty at Banks Ford on the Rappahannock, the relations with the enemy at this time were so friendly that conversations and exchanges of civilities were frequent, with the pickets on the opposite side of the Rappahannock, no shooting at each other, being tolerated without previous notice. The left wing of the 155th, composed of five companies under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Kane, remained at Banks Ford, while the five other companies composing the right wing of the regiment, under command of Major Pearson, was assigned to picket duty at Kelly's Ford. Sergeant Major John H. Irwin remained for duty with the left wing, with Lieutenant Colonel Kane commanding at Banks Ford, and Major Pearson in command of the right wing detailed Private Charles F. McKenna of Company E as acting Sergeant Major of that wing. On this picket duty at these two fords, the regiment remained quite comfortable until April 27th, when the Irish Brigade, under General Meagher of the 2nd Corps, relieved both wings of the regiment from picket duty. General George G. Meade, the new 5th Corps commander with his staff, had visited the picket posts of the 155th Regiment at the fords named the day before the regiment was relieved by Meagher's men. General Meade and staff made observations with their field glasses to ascertain the positions of the enemy opposite and the situation of the forces across the Rappahannock. 
the regiment was returning to Camp Humphreys on being relieved from picket duty at the fords when it met the other divisions of the 5th Corps on the march, indicating the opening of the campaign for which the eight days' rations had been issued. General Meade personally halted the 155th Regiment on its march to its old camp and directed the officers to have the regiment file off the road to the sides so as to allow the marching column of the troops to pass, and that when Humphrey's division reached the point where the regiment had halted, the latter should fall into the line and accompany it. The greeting of the other regiments of Humphrey's division to the 155th halted on the roadside was most cordial, and demonstrations of affection were particularly manifested by the nine months' regiments on the march with whom the 155th had been associated ever since enlistment. The 5th Corps column marched past Hartwood Church April 28th. General Hooker and staff rode by close to where the 155th had halted in the columns, and his presence was greeted with cheering and shouts of eight days' rations, which seemed to amuse the general very much, as he most courteously responded to the salutes of his men. The 28th and 29th were spent in marching to the point on the Rappahannock, where it was intended to cross over to give the enemy battle. The regiment, before starting on this campaign, had reached a high state of efficiency, being under the command of Lieutenant Colonel John H. Kane, who, in the battle and subsequent movements of the regiment, won the approbation of his superior officers and all the men of the regiment for his soldierly conduct. Crossing the Rappahannock and the Rapidan The regiment, on the night of the 29th, camped on bluffs overlooking the Rappahannock, and from these heights... On the next morning, a most impressive and picturesque view was witnessed in the movement across the Rappahannock, on pontoons of the army composed of more than 100,000 men, comprising infantry, cavalry, and artillery. This, with miles of ammunition and headquarters wagons, presented a remarkable scene, and one most impressive and interesting. It was dusk in the evening, when it came the turn of Humphrey's division to cross on the pontoons. The soil on the south side of the Rappahannock, after this command, had crossed was found to be marshy and sandy, and most difficult to travel over, and the wagon and pontoon trains could scarcely move on these roads. April 30th, 1863, Humphrey's division rose early and marched steadily, fording the Deep Creek, a stream knee-deep. After marching until late in the afternoon, the division reached the Rapidan River, at Eli's Ford. A halt of three or four hours occurred at this point, the delay being caused by a blockade of the roads by wagon trains. At first the proposition that all the troops should wade the Rapidan at this ford seemed incredible, considering that the weather was quite cool and that the troops had become very warm by their fatiguing march. However, the order was given to ford the stream, and it was cheerfully obeyed. Almost all of the troops stripped off their clothing and packed it in one of the miscellaneous bundle, which they placed on their shoulders with their guns, and timidly but firmly stepped into the cold water. Bundles and guns and clothes were lost by many of the men in crossing the stream, and various devices were invented to float or carry soldiers and officers across. The water was up to the chest of a man of ordinary size, and the stream was quite swift. All the division trains, artillery, cattle, and pack mules, carrying hardtack and rations, forded the river, after crossing the stream, 
Humphrey's division encamped in a dense pine woods for the night, starting big fires to dry their clothes and receiving rations of hardtack and fresh beef. Friday, March 1st, 1863, after resuming the march early and passing through dense woods about 10 o'clock, Humphrey's division reached the open ground in the vicinity of what afterwards became famous and known as Chancellorsville. The division formed in line for inspection, during which a general order from General Joseph Hooker, commanding the Army of the Potomac, was read by the adjutants to the respective regiments of the division. The order congratulated the Army on its successful series of marches of the last few days, and its great surprise to the enemy taken unaware, and promised the sure destruction of the enemy on his own soil. This order further declared that we had now got that enemy where he would have, to come from his strongholds and give us battle or ingloriously retreat. The order thus read inspired the men with additional confidence and affection for Hooker, and for the march had been a success and a total surprise to the enemy. After marching a few miles farther from this position, General Meade led Griffin's and Sykes' division of the Fifth Corps to the roadside near the Chancellor House, and there formed a junction with the Second Army Corps under General Hancock, which had crossed the Rappahannock the night before at Banks Ford. Whilst halted here, an inspection of arms took place, and the command was ordered to load their guns. The bugle call sounded to resume the march. Many of the soldiers, from their excessive marching and the prospect of battle, threw away at this point their knapsacks and other impediments likely to become burdensome. Battle of Chancellorsville Which we will be picking up next week. I know, I know. This is an 18-minute episode. What is wrong with me? I just know that the Battle of Chancellorsville is going to need its own separate episode. And so, you know, this episode's already going to run a little bit longer anyway. I didn't want to make it some super episode that was just way too long to be interesting for a lot of people. So, trust me, in regards to this book, I've got a lot to cover. And this is just the main story. Wait until we get to the veterans' accounts. And anyway, the Battle of Chancellorsville is kind of a complex battle and we need to talk about it, kind of set it up a little bit. We're not going to go too much into it because we're staying on the story of the 155th here. For people who don't know, I think I need to set the story up a little bit. So first of all, let's talk politics. Because even for generals of the American Civil War, they had to navigate the world of politics. Just to even get to general of the Army of the Potomac, like Hooker here, that's quite a feat. And he did it by essentially talking trash about absolutely everyone who would listen. This guy's garbage, this guy's garbage, this guy's garbage, I can do better, I can do better. Some of the earliest quotes that we have from him in the Civil War is just like him talking trash. So let's talk about General Joseph fighting Joe Hooker. Hooker was born in Hadley, Massachusetts. His great-grandfather had fought in the American Revolution as an officer. His English family had immigrated in the 1600s, and he graduated from the United States Military Academy in 1837, ranked 29th out of 50, and he was commissioned a second lieutenant in the 1st U.S. Artillery. He fought in Florida in the Second Seminole War, 
He served in staff positions in the campaigns of both Zachary Taylor and Winfield Scott during the Mexican-American War. And he also had a reputation as a ladies' man, and that initially comes to light in Mexico, where the women referred to him as the handsome captain. So now we're going to jump a few a few years uh, to the American Civil War. And he's he got out of the army, managed to secure a commission when the war kicked off, finally. Uh, worked his way up as a corps commander, served under both McClellan and Burnside. But during the Mud March, which is what we covered last episode, which got Burnside fired, Hooker was quoted by a New York Times Army correspondent as saying that, quote, Nothing would go right until we had a dictator, and the sooner, the better. After Lincoln gave him the leadership position as Army of the Potomac, or as commander of the Army of the Potomac, he wrote him a letter in which he states, quote, I have heard, in such a way as to believe it, of your recently saying that both the army and the government needed a dictator. Of course, it was not for this, but in spite of it, that I have given you the command. Only those generals who gain success can set up dictators. What I now ask of you is military success, and I will risk the dictatorship. Unquote. You ever think how scary this whole event must have been for Abraham Lincoln? Like, really? This is, he, I don't, he was not, I don't think when he was running for president, he was prepared for this, but that's what he ended up having to deal with was generals telling them that they need to overthrow him and install themselves as dictators. But while we're talking about quotes with Hooker, I grabbed two more. And the first one is from Charles Francis Adams, who wrote in his autobiography, quote, a noisy, low-toned intriguer under whose influence army headquarters was a place where no self-respecting man liked to go and no decent woman could go. It was a combination of barroom and brothel, unquote. So he did have a drinking problem and he did help with, they ended up calling the red light district in Washington city at this point in time, hookers division because he uh, had such an affinity for the girls. And I've got this other quote that's from William Tecumseh Sherman in April 1863. And this was written two weeks before the battle that we're about to talk about. Quote, I know Hooker well, and tremble to think of his handling 100,000 men in the presence of Lee. I don't think Lee will attack Hooker in position, because he will doubt if it will pay but let Hooker once advance, or more laterally, and I fear for the result. Those are wise words from a man who's still fighting out west and hasn't made his way over east yet. So General Hooker trash talks his way, and also shows his bravado and his bravery, up his way into the Army of the Potomac, and greases the right wheels, helps himself get appointed to commander of the Army of the Potomac. It's, it's a lot more than that, of course. But if you want to learn more, you can just go read a biography on him that somebody's already written. I mean, there's he's got whole websites and books and all sorts of stuff just dedicated to this guy. I'm going to go ahead and include a picture on my website, rebellionstories.com, along with all the other photos and parts that I've read for this episode, plus a few others. You can go and check them out. They'll have their own separate sections for a lot of them. A couple of others will be all together. 
So, this is the guy who's going to lead the Army of the Potomac. We'll find out how that works next episode. He's certainly a character, that's for sure. I mean, he's a good corps commander, so, you know, everything should go according to plan. Some of the more minor stuff that I wrote down, uh, when they talked about a review of all the corps operate together for Abraham Lincoln, like, I just wanted to meet Abraham Lincoln. Can you imagine him reviewing a 100,000 men in splendid order on a flat plane? My goodness. Sometimes I feel like I've been robbed by history. And then again, I enjoy modern medicine, which I wouldn't have if I went back in time, but... Anyway, I've gone ahead and put up an artist wartime drawing of the parade, and you can check that out on my website. Now, let's talk about the setup to the campaign that the army is taking. The goal at this point in the war that the Army of the Potomac was repeatedly trying to do, like their objective, was to capture the capital of the Confederacy, Richmond, Virginia. And four times the Union Army has tried to reach it. One time getting within six miles. And four times it's been forced back. So this is attempt number five. And the army is feeling, well, down is the easiest way to put it, especially after the Battle of Fredericksburg. So Hook goes about making the army into a fighting force again, one with high morale, and he goes about that by giving them core badges, like the name of this book, I might add, Under the Maltese Cross. He gets them better food, new equipment, sanitation, and just all sorts of stuff. Great camps, new tents. Hooker reorganizes and improves for the duration of the war. Uh, military intelligence finally comes into its real own. Military intelligence actually takes on a proper role under him, whereas before it had been run by the Pinkertons as contractors. Guess well how well that went. Tens of thousands of Union soldiers died as a result of the Pinkertons. The general plan that the army is, uh, is they're going to go back and they're going to take Richmond, but he's going to crush Lee's army in a pincer movement. So Hooker devises a plan that he's going to take 10,000 cavalry under General Stoneman and run them around General Lee's rear, burning bridges and shooting things and cutting off lines of communication, while one force of men stays at Fredericksburg and a smaller force also stays at the tents, confuse them. And even more men head east and cross the Rappahannock, essentially when General Lee and the Confederate Army isn't looking because they're too distracted by everything else that's going on. So we'll find out next episode how well his plan pays off and whether it works. What I did find absolutely adorable was both pickets, and picket duty is just like guard duty when you're out away from the, uh, the main lines, the camps, and that kind of thing. And you're essentially trying to make sure that the enemy doesn't surprise attack you, so you put men out on picket duty. But the fact that they went out and traded goods with each other and wouldn't shoot at each other, is, I, I find that adorable. Also, if you don't know what the Irish Brigade is, oh boy, oh boy, do I have some links for you. Do they have a Wikipedia? Yeah. Yeah, they do. They do. Of course they have a Wikipedia. Do they have websites dedicated to them? TV shows, documentaries, books. Yeah, they've got all of that. You could spend all day reading about the Irish brigades that fought for the Union. As with all great things, when immigrants come to the United States, they always bring something amazing with them. And in this sense, there's a lot of music written in the American Civil War. 
the Irish could not stop writing music at this time. There are so many songs from the American Civil War that involve the Irish that they have their own compilation playlists on YouTube if you want to go look. I'm going to include one on my website, rebellionstories.com. You can come check it out. I'll have, um, or when you see the American and Green Flag of Ireland, click on that and it'll take you to everything that I'm going to have linked for you guys. It's a great read, very interesting. They get a bunch of Medal of Honors. They fight really well. But the music, mm, the music is top-notch, my friends. You'll enjoy it, I promise. But with that, my friends, I'm going to go ahead and call it a night, because it's actually morning. I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. We start the Battle of Chancellorsville next week. I'll finally be done with Chapter 6. And then after that, we'll be moving on to Chapter 7, which... We're only halfway through the war at this point, and we are not anywhere close through even halfway through this book, so not even a quarter way, which is nuts. But, you know, we've got a lot to cover. So with that, my friends, I will see you next week, and have a great one. And uh, get vaccinated, just like Union and Confederate soldiers had to do. They will find him and know him Amongst the good and true When a robe of white is given for That faded coat of blue No more the bugle Calls the weary one Rest, noble spirit In thy grave alone They will find you and know you Amongst the good and true when a robe of white is given for that faded coat of blue, he cried, Give me water and just one little crumb, and my mother, she will bless you through all the years to come. Go tell my sweet sister, so gentle, good, and true, that I'll meet her up in heaven. In my faded coat of blue No more the bugle Calls the weary one Rest, noble spirit In thy grave alone They will find you and know you Amongst the good and true When a robe of white is given for That faded coat of blue